Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. I hope you're all well. If you're listening to this on the day it comes out, then very happy Christmas Eve. I know this is not the Christmas any of us really had planned, but I hope everyone's okay and that this can provide little escapism and light relief if you're in the market for either of those things. Angela is a hug in human form, so this is definitely the right episode for today. This is another episode that we recorded last year, and it was right before Angela's podcast called Thanks a Million launched, which is now in its third season and is full of the feel-good factor if you haven't yet checked it out. So wishing you all a very happy Christmas wherever you might be and whatever the circumstances, and I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. My guest today is Angela Scanlon. Angela is a TV presenter, a radio host, and most recently, a podcaster. Originally from Ireland, she moved to London in 2014, and her career has gone from strength to strength. She first made her name as a stylist and fashion journalist before becoming a fixture on Irish television, appearing on the likes of Expose and Off the Rails, as well as Channel 4's Sunday Brunch. She's since been described as the BBC's golden girl with presenting jobs including Robot Wars, The One Show and her own radio show on BBC Radio 2. Vogue has described Angela as being known for her humour, directness and upbeat cheerfulness. Welcome, Angela. Hello. (laughs) Upbeat cheerfulness. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good description. Like I take that if Vogue said that about me. I mean, listen, I'll take whatever I'm given. I know that you've recently been back to Ireland to help launch Taste of Ireland, Mm -hmm. which is obviously aimed at showcasing the best of Irish food and drink. Yeah. So is food a real passion of yours? So... I eat food (laughs) and I love it. Um, My husband's family are actually in the food business. And so I think oddly, so I've always been super interested. Like when I was a kid, I was a very picky eater. But then I got really interested as I was a teenager. I danced a lot. So I became really quite interested in nutrition, sometimes to a slightly unhealthy degree. But it kind of gave me a real appreciation for, yeah, for food and for provenance and for quality food. And for a long time, you know, my, and and even now, a lot of my income goes on food. It's less on, on clothes. It's on, it's on food. Like I love good food. And maybe since I've been married and been introduced to that side of the family, I kind of feel like, okay, I know I got this. I understand it more or I have permission to talk about it because previously I felt like you had to be a chef or a critic to really talk about it from any, you know, point of credibility, I suppose. But then I think similar to art, it's stuff, it's, you have a point of view. Oh yeah, of course. I love eating it. Yeah, Yeah. that's why this podcast is so interesting, just speaking to everyone because we do all eat food. (laughs) Totally. And also I think, you know, um, the Taste the Island thing for me was, you know, I have kind of accidentally become a, you know, face or ambassador for Ireland yeah. abroad, uh, which is a bit weird. But I think we're known for many different things. We're on telly. There's a lot of entertainment. There's loads of brilliant musicians and artists and poets and culture is kind of very much recognised. But food and Ireland as a food destination less so. And there's real misconceptions around what Irish food is 
and it's different from what it's been historically yeah and I think yeah because in recent yeah. years it's it, it's sort of becoming famous as this amazing artisan like the food there is incredible isn't yeah it? yeah and I mean I know you've spoken to uh to lots of different people and you you're aware of Bally Malou and yeah. I think Bally Malou has kind of had a real a real part to play in that and Doreen Allen with the slow slow food movement in Ireland years and years ago well, like way back in the 80s before artisan was a word we were all flinging around willy-nilly unbelievable but there is definitely a real yeah there's there's uh, a real appetite <laughs> appetite um for it and yeah, real pride and amazing talent in Ireland in the food sector and produce is incredible. So it's kind of nice to be able to talk about that. Definitely. Going back to what you just said, I did read an interview where you said that food is is your biggest indulgence and that if you can, you eat out three times a day, which sounds amazing. <laughs> Does that mean you like cooking or not so much? So I do cook. I wonder when that was. I guess that was before I had a baby. It's a little less uh, enjoyable yeah, now. That's harder to do out. now. Um, but yeah, I do, I do love eating out. And, I, and like I said, that's where I spend most of my money. But I also love cooking. And I, I prefer cooking to baking. I feel like there's a distinction between those two things, right? I'm not good at following recipes, but I feel like I have a decent idea of what works and how like texture and flavor combinations and I'm quite bold with that but like ask me to make a cake and it's shitsville yeah. like I cannot <laughs> do it so uh yeah so cooking I love to do I feel like I maybe don't always prioritize it in my life with time but I have started to of late realize that actually yeah it's so apart from you know feeding you it's escape, isn't it? And it's nurturing and it's nourishing in more ways than one. And and it's an expression of love. And maybe, you know, now as a mum, I'm like, oh, wow, that's quite a lovely thing to do. And I respect it more. Whereas previous, I was like, well, it's not my thing. I outsource, you know, my accounts. So why wouldn't I outsource the food to somebody who does it better than I inevitably will do? And now I'm like, yeah, it's it's kind of the intention that's poured into a meal that's often as important as the technique. Yeah, completely. That's such a nice way of thinking about it. So you're one of four sisters. Mm -hmm. So let's jump into the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. The dish that most reminds me of my childhood. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say Finder's crispy pancakes. Ooh. And then I thought my mother would shoot me. <laughs> so I think it's a kind of like slightly unsexy, slow cooked chicken dinner, which... I definitely didn't appreciate back in the day. And again, that kind of intention and the time and the preparation. And it wasn't very exotic. It was so commonplace that I, I definitely took it for granted. But only now am I coming back to it and thinking, oh, something so pure about that kind of meal and sitting around together demolishing that. So I think that kind of meal is is the thing I remember from my childhood. And actually, the thing that reminds me most of my mum, it was a very, it's a very grown up dinner. And until recently, I thought, like, until you can do a roast, you're not really an adult. And now I can do a pretty good oh, roast. Oh, so you're officially an adult. Like a rite of passage. <laughs> yeah. And and what was it like there? Is it sort of rolling countryside and really rural? Or is it a town? like Rural, picture? in the middle of nowhere. Like, so maybe a mile and a half to the closest village 
which is pretty small. Yeah. So we were tomboys or as somebody said recently, the direct, the, the French translation for tomboy is failed boy. Oh, <laughs> like, excuse <laughs> That's me. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. But we were, yeah, we were quite wild. And I just remember us being out on bikes and trekking around, making huts, like in ditches and in fields. So like very outdoorsy, not kind of particularly girly girls, for want of a better phrase. And yeah, it was, you know, four girls is pretty intense. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in teenage years, very intense. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, also very lucky. You know, I think of my daughter now and I'm like, in theory, I'd like one more kid. But if it's not a girl, I feel like I'm depriving her of a sister and having three, I'm spoiled rotten with sisters. So my mum doesn't have a sister and she says her her um, biggest regret, she has, you know, had two brothers and would love to have had a sister. Oh, so, really? Yeah, again, you maybe take for granted, like you take for granted growing up in the countryside if you grow yeah. up there, you take for granted the chicken dinner. So um, I'm very thankful for my three wild sisters. I read that your dad describes you as being free range <laughs> and that you've always been that way, meaning I guess that you like to do your own thing and you sort of don't apologize for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's always described us as free range. My mum has always said you were all born lucky. Oh, <laughs> like cut cats, whatever that means, so that we kind of always tend to land on our, our feet, which again, I didn't realise at the time, but is a really like lovely thing to kind of have. There's a weird safety net to that, this confidence that somehow things will work out. But I think also what a great way to grow up being told that because then you start to believe it. Like, yes, I am. 100%. Very lucky. <laughs> and I didn't realize that that's what she was like. I don't think she was consciously going, oh, the law of attraction or yeah. any of those things. <laughs> but actually it did make me think, yeah, whatever happens, it gives you a kind of confidence to take risks and to to say yes and to believe you can do something even if you don't know the how of, yeah. you know, how um, that will happen. And probably being free range has stood you in really good stead to be doing the career that you're doing now. Totally. And I also just love the expression. It's like yeah, it's so slightly wild, a little bit feral. Yeah, but kind I'm imagining of, you as like a little chicken just yeah, running totally around. Totally. Roaming free, <laughs> marching to the beat of your own drum. Yeah, it's cute. You've said that like many Irish people who move abroad, being away from Ireland has given you a renewed sense of Irishness and a real sort of protectiveness of being from Ireland. Mm. Is that something that you feel more and more the longer you're not living there. Yeah. And I think that's probably something that anyone who lives away from from home experiences over time. I, I always thought it was a uniquely Irish thing, but I think it's probably everybody. But yeah, I do definitely, you know, I, I come home and I'm like, oh, wow, it's so green. I sound like an American tourist. <laughs> and I'm like, it's so green. Oh, my God. But um, it really is. Like, you can't believe it. Really it really is. You know, and you kind of think, oh, it's practically the same. It's, re it's really not. And I just, um, I spent a lot of time in Dublin, you know, throughout university. And then when I was working there initially, and you go back and even though I've been years out of Dublin, you, you can't walk down the streets without bumping into people. It's a very, it's a city that's kind of more like a town really in terms of its scale. And yeah, there's just a familiarity and a warmth and yeah, a charm, I think that's, that's quite unique and feels safe, but also exciting. And like, you just never know what's going to happen, which is, is lovely. But I do, I think again, the things that you take for granted become really obvious when you are 
geographically removed, you know, and maybe that's more, maybe it's more poignant with everything that's going on over here at the moment. Suddenly things feel, you know, Ireland, which often is thought of it as quite a, a, you know, it's a small little country and we always talk about how we punch above our weight and we do this, that and the other. But actually, you know, there's kind of decisions that have been made, whether it's the, you know, marriage referendum and repeal the eighth and kind of that have really bolstered and my generation had given a sense of pride that actually, yes, we're known for many things, but we're so outward looking now as a country. And I say we like I'm still there, but there's a pride that I think my generation has in in Ireland now. And there's a a reach and a confidence that wasn't there before for so many reasons. So, um, yeah, I feel really privileged, I suppose, to to be able to work away and still feel very tethered, I yeah. guess. You've to, kind of got the best Ireland. of both worlds. Yeah. Um, making yeah. you quite envious and no. I'm not from Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pause there and talk about the second Desert Island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. First dish that I learned to cook were, it was pancakes. Ooh, what kind? Well, now there are loads of kinds and I sometimes buy them from, um, you know, a bag that has lots of high protein and almonds and is like a supposedly healthy mix or I'll make buckwheat Wait, you pancakes. buy a bag of pancake mix? mix. I know, I'm oh, sorry, okay. I'm ashamed of myself, no. don't judge me. Um, <laughs> but it's handy and it tastes better. What, and then you just than add like an egg? egg. Or okay. yeah, like fake eggs. But yeah, this was just the old, like like flour, a French flour milk. Not like an American one. No, not like an American one, but we would make them a bit thick. So basically it was Pancake Tuesday. Oh, the best. Honestly, we were talking about it recently. And now, so my sister who lives next door to my mum and dad where we grew up, she's got four kids. Pancakes, everyone does pancakes now, right? Like, oh, let, uh, you know, kids have pancakes potentially every day or at least on a weekend or whatever. It's not like that uncommon. Back in the day in Ireland, I never went to a cafe as a kid to have like some pancakes with maple syrup. I didn't even know what a cafe was. Yeah, it's true. That's changed so much, hasn't it? Like it's crazy. That idea of eating out was, you know, if you made your communion, you maybe ate out. You didn't eat out for birthdays. Like it just wasn't a thing. Yeah your parents would escape you and have a meal out potentially (laughs) once a month. But pancakes were so special and so exotic. And I remember coming home from school and the smell of, so like obviously the batter would have been done and we were so, it was like Christmas. Pancake Tuesday was like Christmas. And my mum would be on the go and we would sit like along the countertop and she would be (laughs) relentlessly dishing them out. Well, yeah, because she had a lot to make if there were four of you. There was, and it was, and you would roll them up and sugar like the proper granule, like filthy sugar and lemon. It was quite simple. But that's the best. Oh, they're the best. And even now I can smell them and I can taste them. And yeah, just that kind of conveyor belt. Will we have more? Yes, always more. And I still have that kind of fondness, which is obviously not a very Irish traditional dish. But for me, there was a kind of warmth of that day and excitement. And yeah, like I said, I was kind of a an oddly fussy eater. And I would sometimes, you know, I'd sit there and I would have to have our, my fabulous dinner reheated multiple times. My sisters would have left the table and I would sit there until I finished. The, I mean, now they get that, you know, you'll eat when you're hungry and it's not ideal to like force. Yeah, but day. back in the day, that is what we it's did. Like we it? are not wasting yeah. that. And it was, again, a very, of the time, it was, you know, there wasn't necessarily that much going around and my parents were taught to eat what they were given and be thankful. And and so, um, yeah, the idea of leaving food on the plate was 
a no-no. Yeah. <laughs> but Pancake Tuesday was Woo! Celebration. Yeah, that would yeah. never be left on the plate. <laughs> so let's go back to the start of your career because you studied business at mm. the Dublin Institute of Technology. Yeah. You were there for four years. So I was wondering during that time, what were you thinking you might want to do as a job? So during that time, I was thinking that I would set up a store, a chain of boutiques, my own label. I was going to be a business mogul. And is that, that sort of what you went into the course thinking? Like, I want to do this thing and I'm going to find out how to make that happen. Well, to be honest, I wish that I had <laughs> that level of foresight. I was thinking, my friend Sharon's doing that course and she's kind of sound and I couldn't be arsed looking at <laughs> what else is out there. <laughs> so I, at the time, there's a thing called a CA, CAO form. And that's how you basically decide what your life will look like. You choose your career. We had a career guidance teacher who told me I was really good with people. And okay. so maybe I should be a nurse. Oh, right. Okay. Obviously. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, no, I'm, I don't want to be a nurse. I was interested in nutrition as a dancer. I thought maybe I'll do nutrition and dietetics, which was one of the courses. And my mom's friend was a nurse or a matron in a in an old people's hospital, actually. And she said, yeah, she said, oh, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. You'll just end up uh, doing meal plan for diabetics for the rest of your life. And I was like, okay, yeah, no, that doesn't really sound that sexy. So I'm going to leave that. <laughs> I then thought about being a journalist because I really loved English and I really liked writing. And I said to my mom, I think I'd like to be a journalist. And in her mind, a journalist meant somebody who was on like the front line. And as a mother, she <laughs> talked me out of that. So I did have an ideas about what I wanted to do, but I was pretty much talked out of each of those. And then I thought, you know what, let's just go wide. Maybe I'll just do business and you can't go wrong. And then I was, you know, being gently coerced into making a decision about what my future might look like. And I thought, oh, well, at least if I have that, I can, you know, I knew that I wanted to work for myself. That's all okay. I knew. Okay. But that's good to know. I guess I just felt like I'm I'm not really designed to work for other people. Although oddly, as a freelancer, for kind of want of a better term, I work for everybody. Yeah. I'm everybody's bitch. And so and you have so many different bosses. Totally. You're like, like, oh like, yeah, you work for yourself. Wink wink. You're basically <laughs> selling yourself every single day to every single person. Yeah, that's so. interesting, isn't it? I guess it's just like a different way of looking at it. Totally. And I think in my head I And you can say no. Yeah, there's a control. You're like, yeah, cool. I'm not being told to do this, that, and the other. Because yeah, there's this slight Yes. discomfort with that. <laughs> um, so I read that after you finished that course, you went traveling to Australia. And at that time, you were sort of filling notebooks, talking about this boutique that you were going to set up. So what happened next? I came home and I, well, I, I was looking actually at setting up cafes. I traveled around and been like, there's so many things, you know, ideas that even chopped salad bars that, that I'd seen in America that weren't here. And I was like, that's a great idea. Cafes weren't, you know, coffee shops hadn't hit in the way that they are now. And I thought that's a really great idea. And so I always really loved that kind of world. And I loved fashion. Anyway, I looked at starting up a business. I realized I had no money and that that is kind of prohibitory, is that yeah. a word? Prohibitive. Prohibitive. Yeah. <laughs> Prohibitive. <laughs> Lucky I don't speak for a living. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so anyway, I parted, I got a job in a boutique 
in Dublin, very well-known, very successful boutique. And I hated it, partly because maybe the stuff wasn't quite me. I realized I can't lie to people. And if somebody was wearing a dress that I really didn't love, I would tell them, mm, I don't know about that. But on that you. could have been your USP. <laughs> I guess so, but not great for sales. <laughs> yeah, not great for your boss. No. So I think... I just realized that actually it was, it was quite repetitive. And obviously I was working and if it was my own thing, I would have been buying there. You know, there's a million different ways, but it just kind of made me realize that that was not my calling. And so I left, but still in fashion. And I, and I decided I was going to set up a, a stall and sell things myself, which is kind of the same thing. But again, I thought but at least I yourself. love the product and yeah. at least I can figure out how to do that. So I did that. Also, then, it sounds just really good that you were doing so many different things. And I mean, that is the only way to figure out what you want to do, isn't it? Crossing totally. things off the list. Absolutely. And I was kind of, again, I think my parents, although I didn't realize it or appreciate it at the time, were very supportive of me, like figuring out what I wanted to do. My stall was at a weekend. I was essentially working two days a week. I thought I had made it. The dream. Also forgetting <laughs> to put money back into the business. So I was selling stuff and going, boom, beta. And then I never really realized I would send my mom away and she'd buy things in Spain and I'd never pay her. And then I'd sell them. That is a good business. I mean, it is genius, <laughs> but it wasn't very sustainable. She still reminds me. But yeah, then, then I got into TV kind of accidentally. I worked as a personal shopper and in this, Expose, which you mentioned in the intro, was a kind of magazine show focused on fashion and lifestyle, very female skewing and kind of like e-entertainment. And they did lots of chat on fashion and award seasons. And I, as somebody who was personal shopping and styling editorially and writing about fashion, um, they got me on to talk about those things. And it felt easy and natural and exciting and and just really creative and so i decided shit this would be be quite a good thing to do and so i started along with you know continuing the fashion stuff i was pitching fashion programs because that was obviously my area of credibility and what i knew best and then i pitched a, a documentary uh, called oi ginger oh yes really my entry that into was the light bulb moment yeah Let's talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish that you've ever eaten. The best dish that I've ever eaten. I was thinking about this and I wanted it to be really elaborate and dramatic. And then I thought, for me, like with everything, and obviously the oyster thing is quite a pompous thing. And this idea that, you know, the ceremony is is really important. And actually, it's it's kind of not the the intention is now, I think, something I value more. And when I went to Ireland to, to launch that Taste of Ireland thing, and I met this woman who is responsible for a company called Wild Kitchen La Hinch. And so it's all about sustainable food, but foraging. Okay. And I've done foraging before um, in Wexford and I absolutely loved it. And it sounds so, um, it sounds quite hippie and you kind of think you're going to be starving after. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so, um, satisfying. But what she had done, which again, I don't know why it's never been done before, but it was all focused on seaweed. Obviously, mm -hmm. Ireland is an island. We're literally surrounded by seaweed. We absolutely take seafood for granted. And there's like a whole other issues around that, which I won't go into. But 
she had made this salad with sugar kelp and sea spaghetti and sea lettuce and nori and the most amazing kind of Japanese inspired um, dressing with sesame seeds on top of it. And it was honestly one of the most beautiful things I have ever tasted in my life. It was like so alive. And she talked about how some of them need to be cut and some of them need to be cut with scissors and some, you, you need to leave the plant there and you need to keep them in. You never wash them. You keep them in seawater. And the passion with which she talked about, it, and I stood at this little stall that she was at and I just kept having more and more and more. And I don't know whether it was, you know, summer holidays by the beach or it just felt really like visceral and really um, pure. and. It was one of the best things that I've ever tasted. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And I'm, such an original answer. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say such an original idea, but also really simple. <laughs> so yeah, I like that idea. And I wish that I lived by the sea so I could whip out an old scissors and go and get my own sea yeah, spaghetti in the evening. <laughs> so was Robot Wars your big break when it came to television? Was that the first thing that you had where you just kind of thought, wow, this is huge? Yeah, I guess. Over here, I mean, the docs that I did in Ireland, they were they were pretty big in hindsight, you know, and in theory, I had never done very much telly and, and I was suddenly kind of doing these shows. But again, I think it felt very natural and I loved the production side of things and I was very involved in development and I'm yeah, kind of really got stuck in, I suppose. And then when I moved over here, I did some online stuff. And my, I guess my big break, I think of was like a digital series that I did for The Voice. And in my mind, I thought, wow, it kind of opened up the world to me. And I saw people doing the job that I thought ultimately I would love to do. And I was you know, just breathing the same air and learning. And I always had that. I think a lot of people get frustrated by that period where you're progressing and where you're doing, you know, the groundwork and it can't come quick enough. It's a really frustrating place to be. And I have always tried, failed many times, but I always try when I was styling, when I was writing, um, and now in telly to think of those periods of time as free training rather than as kind of unpaid labor. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, because it just shifts your mindset and suddenly you're like grateful for the opportunity to 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 learn and to to grow. And so I, yeah, that was a real eye opener for me. And then I got I did, you know, one of my first live show, which was a tea in the park thing. And again, I'd kind of said that I'd done live telly in Ireland, which I hadn't. I mean, live telly must be really, really scary. <laughs> yeah, but ignorance is bliss. And thankfully, I mean, I I can do it because there is a, there is the fear that you're like, you've talked your way into this. People assume you know what you're going to do. And again, I have my mum ringing in my ears. You'll be grand. You'll figure it out. And actually, technically, there's quite a lot to take on board. But I, I, um, I thankfully, you know, there's maybe this, uh, somewhat of a natural aptitude there, and and that now I've, you know, done quite a bit of it. It feels, um, it feels, yeah, easier, but also exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. But Robot Wars, yeah, was was a leap for sure, and I remember 
distinctly arriving in the studios that was filmed in a in a massive industrial estate in in Glasgow and I remember arriving for the block through again like language I didn't even really understand and I was, <laughs> and I was too afraid to say that because I thought I'm what an are you talking fraud. about somebody's <laughs> gonna find me out whereas actually if I had gone sorry what what is this they'd have maybe like that's fine it's fine to say you don't know everything yeah, but when you're feeling nervous and sort of, yeah, yeah it's so scary to admit you feel that you like don't know anything. Absolutely. You feel like you're, if you admit it, it's the house of cards is going to fall, you know? And so that, yeah, just the sheer scale of it and the terror. And I, I was really quite overwhelmed by it. And I had, I felt like, oh, shit, I'm really going to, I'm going to get find it, found out here. There's nowhere to hide. Imposter syndrome hit. Big time. And and then I thankfully got an email to go back to do something on the one show. And it was my first time doing like in studio on the one show, not hosting it, but but just off the back of one of the VTs, which I had done. So I went down. It went really well. And I was able to then go back to Glasgow for the main event going, OK, you've got this. This is not like you're not faking it. You're not about to be found out. You just have to do what you do and everything else will will fall into place and uh, honestly it was it was one of my favorite jobs robot wars i have a really um it has a really special place in my heart uh, for so many reasons because yes it was a it was a massive break even if at the time i wasn't quite aware of just how big but it was uh yeah it was just a a bit of a gift and an entry into a world and an introduction to humans who kind of had so much passion for this thing that was, um, you know, pretty underground and pretty weird. And uh, yeah, I love, I love weirdos. <laughs> They're my favorite. I am one. Well, that leads us on well to the next question, which is the fourth desert island dish. And that's your favorite sandwich. Oh, my favorite sandwich is and I sometimes try to recreate this, okay? It was from, I spent a summer in Santa Barbara with friends of mine years and years ago. And I was interested, because I wasn't really big in sandwiches. Back in the day, <laughs> going to school, my mom would make sandwiches. And I, oh, am I saying it right? I yeah. always feel self-conscious. No, that sounds way. great. <laughs> sometimes people say sandwiches. I'm like, there's not a G in there, but okay, go for it. Commit. And I I hated them. I, I always find it re- sandwiches just a bit weird. And people would have jam sandwiches. That to me was the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. I would have ham and cheese. By the time you come to lunch, like they were squashed, they were handled. I'm a bit weird about that. But my love for the sandwich grew when I went to Santa Barbara. And it was this. So wholemeal bread with like lots of grains and like seedy bits in it. So texture, key. Avocado long before it came here. So avocado sliced raw mushrooms sliced lettuce what's the little cress like not water cress but the like very stringy tiny baby cress is it is yeah, that like thing? the kind you grow when you're little like the kind you yeah. grow that like out of an egg yeah. top so that all cut in there tomato and the american i'm like really yeah. going through the motions <laughs> here the american mustard so not like coleman's spicy mustard but the mustard you would put on a hot dog yeah the yellow one the yellow one into that all squashed together like hamburger kind of with 
honestly the most delectable sandwich you have ever had in your entire life. That does sound really good. So good. And raw mushrooms. Yeah. Who would have thought raw mushrooms? I know. And avocado. I'd never, I didn't even know what an avocado was. I was like, what is this green mush? I love it. Yeah. I can remember the first time I tasted avocado and it was just like something had been sent from heaven. So good, wasn't it? And the texture of it's so good, but also the thing that kills people. Yeah. Some people really don't like that. Yeah. But now... That's quite a commitment and you need to have particular things in your fridge. There's nothing as pure as a filthy cheese toasty to me. And I have the machine that like seals things in and puts it in a triangle so the cheese is all melty and oh. So good. Do you know, actually the best way to make a cheese toasty is to do it in a waffle maker and then you get loads That's of the one the we extra. have. Yeah, so good. So hang on. Do you squash the actual bread into waffle shape or yeah. take the plates out? No, you do it in the waffle machine. <gasps> and But it, it squishes it like a waffle. So you get loads of texture. Little pockets and, of cheese yeah, bomb. And just like little crusty bits. And it's so good. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is brilliant. I also like to fry a toasted sandwich. Oh, yeah. So you put butter on both of the outsides and then, yeah. Yeah. It melts the cheese properly, but you don't get the boiling molten cheese attack. And then you don't have to clean the waffle iron, which is exactly. a bit of a mission. It's a kind of yeah. pain. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about your podcast, which you've just launched um, just a few weeks ago. It's called Thanks a Million. And you interview people about the things that they are thankful for, which is such a lovely premise. Like it's such a joyful idea for a show. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. So, and it's interesting that you say joy because that has become my sole focus in life. I feel like I have spent a lot of time working very, very hard and I slightly miss the point of life. (laughs) And, you know, things went well and in theory and from the outside looking in, you know, everything's progressing and yeah, things are good. And like the list is being ticked, but actually I kind of forgot what the purpose of it is. And I wasn't really getting very much enjoyment or joy out of things that I was doing, whether that was professional or personal. And so I, you know, I have done loads of things and I'm a very open faddist and I dip in and out and I like a bit of wizardry and whackery and I like alternative therapies and like, you know, real quote unquote therapy. But the thing that I kind of consistently went back to that would get me out of a little hole or that I would find myself recommending to friends who might come to me feeling a bit stuck was was gratitude. And it felt, you know, a bit fluffy. I like meat on the bones, although I'm half, you know, veggie, but that's beside the point. And so I kind of thought actually the the ability for that to shift how you feel, how you are, I suppose, is is quite dramatic. It's free it roots you kind of in the present and it stops you from looking around. And I think we're in a pretty toxic kind of culture where we compare ourselves to everybody. And that's been there since the dawn of time and it has its own purpose, I suppose. But historically it was you and like a few friends or a few people in the village or wherever you, whatever tribe you you know, landed in. And now we can compare ourselves to the world before we even leave our beds. And so that becomes kind of quite paralyzing and stifling. And so for me, this is quite a selfish way of reminding me to 
be grateful for the stuff I have rather than to always be looking at the things that I want and don't have. I'd, I'd say it's quite a selfless, selfish way because it's going to help loads of other people. Like, I well, I hope so. Listening to oh, it. Oh, good. I'm glad. And I think the thank you thing is just a way of of getting into different people's lives and unearthing stories. And ultimately that's what I like, whether it's documentaries, whether it's sitting, hosting the one show, it's storytelling and it's, it's uh, finding out and connecting with people on a slightly, hopefully uh, deeper level and getting them to tell stories that they may not have, have told before. And in a way the kind of list, whether it's the big thank you or the thank you next, just focuses the mind and, and gets them to think a little bit more about life and about the things that have have shaped them and it is it is a reframing thing i was listening to this really good program on radio 4 the other day i love radio 4 it was so good it was all about luck and people who think they're really lucky or people who think they're really unlucky and he had this story about a, a bank robbery happening and someone get getting shot in the arm and if you constantly think you're really unlucky you'd be like oh my goodness i've been shot in the arm i'm so unlucky this is awful whereas another group of people would be like oh my goodness can you believe my luck I only got shot in the arm. And it's so true. That really made me think it's such a reframing way of looking at things. And that's exactly it. And I think reframing is a perfect way to, you know, to package it because essentially it's just how we respond to things, how we perceive things and the power of reframing those things as, you know, a blessing or a lesson or a, you know, exciting challenge. And I remember, you know, I used to, and like I, I often get in a rut and the, so back in the day I would go, I cannot wait for Monday because the possibility, like my phone rings and emails come in and kind of the quietness of the weekend meant like, oh, it's a bit boring. Where are the, all the opportunities come on a Monday? And I didn't realize, but what I was doing was, you know, was drawing that to myself. And I think sometimes people can go, oh my God here we go again. And if you, like I would say to people when the phone rings, I'm like, pick it up. It's money. Oh, pick it up. That's a job. (laughs) And I still do it. I still get excited when the phone rings. And I think that's a kind of accidental like way of attracting good things into your life and reframing like, oh shit, there's probably someone looking for money or asking if I was involved in an accident. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to speak to them. Yeah. That's so true. That's so true. Let's pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish. It's the dish you eat the most often. Eggs. What kind? Every kind. Okay. Scrambled, poached. I don't do poached at home. They're a bit high maintenance. Okay. (laughs) Um, I can do, but like it's a bit scummy and weird. Or maybe that's just my lack of technique. But scrambled eggs, love scrambled eggs, a fried egg with lots of olive oil or butter. Yeah, eggs all the way to the bank. I now cook boiled eggs, which I never really appreciated because I'm not mad on a runny yolk. But my daughter loves boiled eggs and I will cook two boiled eggs. Um, chop them up or she will do soldiers and she scoffs them with her hand and it's like pure joy. joy. Yeah. So (laughs) I do love, and they've got to be free range. They've been, no, I like a good, (laughs) decent eggs with a very yellow yolk. Yes. No, yeah. very important. Yes. So eggs also, they're so easy. They're just so easy. It's like literally two minute meal. So on your podcast, you start each episode with a little list of things that you are thankful for that day, which is so lovely and maybe something that we should all start doing anyway. What are your three things today? Oh, and the reason I do that at the top of the podcast is because sometimes people are like, oh, they need to be. I used to never be able to write the first page of a diary for fear that people would think it's not 
big enough, the ideas, the right, whatever. And I think sometimes people feel like they can't do the gratitude thing because there's not, their things aren't big enough. And I say, you know, a filthy bar of Turkish delight, which by the way, you should always have in your handbag because <laughs> it tastes like soap, but in a really nice way. <laughs> so it, it, they can be tiny little things um, or they can be lovely interactions. What is, well, onto the sixth desert island dish, what is your go-to dinner party dish? So in my head, much like the oyster quaffing dickhead of New York. I'm a kind of dinner party gal, but I don't really do dinner parties. (laughs) So I like a brunch. I think you can get rid of people easier. You don't have to drink that much. And I just feel more in control of my life when I do What would you, what would your brunch consist of? So it's shakshuka. Oh, yum. I know. Makes me look cultured. Yeah. Or it's like smoked salmon and scrambled egg and a loaf straight from the oven that you've reheated, not actually baked. Yeah. <laughs> um, and loads of butter and it's, it's cash and low key. And sometimes I feel like you go into houses, if everything's too perfect, they will never invite you to their house because yeah. they're like, actually, this is a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. It's like if I go to people's houses and they're too clean, um, I think, yeah, no, she's never coming around to mine. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go somewhere neutral. So I like to be low key so that people don't feel uncomfortable about my profession. so generous of I'm you, so <laughs> kind. So yeah, that's my theory. And sometimes like Roy, because my husband, his family, because their food, his dad is an absolute loon for like dinner parties. He'll say, you took teas and coffees will be served in the lounge, which is basically the sitting room, but he's so formal and everything is like quite a palaver. He likes a bit of pomp and Roy has that tendency. And then I say to him, Right, you don't, let's not alienate people. (laughs) We used to always kill each other in the preparing. And I I tell him the process is as important as the sharing of the food. Let's like chill out. They're not coming to a Michelin star restaurant. Chill the beans, throw a sour loaf. Is that a thing? No. Throw a loaf of bread (laughs) in, uh, in the oven, make a few scrambled eggs. And put the telly on it's and so we're all happy. Better. Yeah, yeah. That's such a better way of doing yeah. it. Thank me later. On Desert Island Dishes, we've got a sort of cookbook hall of fame. What is your all-time favourite cookbook or the one you sort of reach for the most often? Again, I really need to branch out, but it's egg-based. It's Michelle LaRue. Is that oh, his name? Yeah. Michelle Rue or yeah. LaRue? The dude. Yeah, Michelle. I think he's Michelle Rue. Rue. Okay, yeah. sorry. <laughs> he sounds Potter LaRue. <laughs> Anywho, I can't speak French, but I love eggs. And he did a book that was especially about eggs. Oh, he did? Yes. And oh my God, now that that you're questioning it, I feel like maybe it's not true. Please Google it. But I think it is true. I bought it for Roy. It was at one of those, um, you know, sometimes in office blocks and at my agents, they had this book sale and everything was really cheap. It was two quid, but it's a really brilliant book. And he has cooked souffle out of it which is like a pretty high octane dish. And he is so good at the souffle. We've recently bought little Le Creuset Ooh, ramekins, little ramekins. <laughs> for them to go in, although he's gone pink, which although I love a millennial pink, yeah, 
all our stuff is blue and white and he just didn't really understand. He went rogue. He went rogue and I was like, I understand what you're doing here, but you've kind of wrecked the theme <laughs> and it's a waste and I did threaten that I would bring them back, but it just put pressure on the whole evening and so I, I'd made peace with the pink ones. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I was clearly over it, but yeah, the souffles that have come out of that. Well, that's the best kind of present to give, isn't it? One that actually you benefit from. Totally. Selfless. Yeah. yeah. There's a theme. Yeah, there is. So we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. And that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. So I did think about this and I thought, and I have always said, my my last meal or my death row meal, this is a kind yeah, of nicer is, way to yeah, do it. a less morbid. Mm, it's a bit more, you know, <laughs> upmarket, would be Japanese. Okay, like a... a a buffet of Japanese food. So like sashimi and sushi and the best tempura you've ever had. That sounds good. And then I was reminded by Olivia sitting over there. She's like, yeah, but really you're going to a desert island. Like you're going to be eating raw fish and nothing else. And I thought... If you can catch it. Yeah, but like there's nothing else really for you. So I thought, yeah, that's a really good idea. I'm going to be absolutely sick of, (laughs) you know, ceviche and a ceviche or whatever, which I know is different to salmon and Japanese food. Anyway, um, and I thought it's probably a carbonara Mm. or some sort of pasta dish where it's Moorish and just soul food and it's a bit filthy but really yeah it's just like it feels warm and like a hug in a bowl (laughs) and it's creamy and it's got sustenance in it but there's only a couple of ingredients and you know oh yeah that's the one I think that is the one and it'll you know hopefully give me a bit of padding for a few days if I haven't managed to nail a fish within 24 yeah. hours. <laughs> no, I have faith in you. I think think you're going to be good at the whole fish catching <laughs> thing, Angela. So. Angela, those are your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you. So there we have it. Thank you, Angela, for another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It gives the show a little boost and helps others to find it, which is exciting. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. It's changed from Margie Nomura. And you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes and episodes at the website, which is DesertIslandDishes.co. And I will see you next week. Happy Christmas and bye.